Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Hello, you're with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is our Saturday edition, and we have a lot going on this week. So we'll be talking about some of the latest stories, but our historical part of this podcast will be on Cortez, who meets up with the Aztecs and will defeat their empire in two years. So very much a curiosity, I think, in military history. So I look forward to hearing about that. But first, let's take a few moments to listen to a few messages. We'll be right back. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. You're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Welcome to everybody. Victor, we'd like to start on a positive note. And this weekend is Mother's Day weekend. And I know that you and I both have mothers, very great mothers, I would say, in both cases. But did you have any reflections on mothers in history or mothers in general? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, the... Key to a, a family is I hate as a male, it's it's kind of ironic, but is is a strong mother, a partnership, but a, a mother. I was very fortunate. My mother was uh, a perfect complement to my father. They were very different, but they were kind of like a duo or a team. And she was kind of a remarkable person. She was born here in the house I'm living in and 1922. She was the first student body president in the history of her high school. 
think she was salutatorian. And she had a scholarship to go to Stanford, but my she met my dad and she went to University Pacific to follow him because he was on a football scholarship. And then she went to Stanford and got a second BA and then a law degree, which is kind of weird in the 40s. Um, and then very hard for her to get a job as a woman with a Stanford law degree in 1946. So she came back to the farm. They had no money. He was started out as a high school teacher and farming, and they moved an old 800-square-foot home, and we lived in that for a while. My grandparents lived in the house that I'm in now at that time. And then she raised us until she was 40 years old. I just remember her playing um, Rodgers and Hammerstein's South Pacific. She played Peter and the Wolf all these operas she taught us the names of them she read stories and then she would always go to fresno at dodson's bookstore and bring back the latest landmark young adult biography and then make us read it and she had a very strange idea she thought we should not go to the country school which was mostly white of farmers kids in that year but to the hispanic um we were right on the border of the hispanic school because she thought it would be better for us uh, to, you know, meet different people. And we did. And I, I think uh, I talked to her once a week growing up. And then when I got to be an adult and she was, I think we talked every day. She died very early at 66 from a meningioma tumor that was benign, but then it turned cancerous. It was very bad, bad but uh, I haven't. I can't say enough about her. I owe so much to her. Every time I'd say, I don't think I'm ever going to get a job. I think I'm going to go broke on the farm, you know, Eeyore. And she'd say, no, 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 no. That kind of reaffirmation. Mothers, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of famous mothers in antiquity and the present. And they kind of, I don't know, if you don't have a good mother, then the whole family falls apart i mean father women can survive bad men leave but if you've got a mother that's not a good mother and i've known some but when you get a good mother that anchors the entire family i think when my mother died very early 66 we had this farm and we had all the everything sort of fell apart for a long time because of her absence and nobody really realized how much she had done for everybody but she was a, a state appellate courts judge. She was the second woman in California. She was the first juvenile woman judge. She was a superior court judge. And with all of that, she was the brains behind keeping 180 acres of farming going. And gosh, when she passed away as a grandmother, mother, wife, everybody fell apart. And that was, and they, and I don't think they ever quite recovered. But anyway, going on to bright news, you asked me for some bright news, right? Well, I have some other bright news that Donald Trump has, um, it, well, with the way that, uh, I think it was, um, yeah, no, it was Breitbart. They were really jubilant about this. Donald Trump hijacked CNN interview with Caitlin Collins was their title. So they felt like, Donald Trump in that CNN interview had really walked all over Caitlin Collins. But I was wondering what your views were. I watched I watched uh, excerpts and I tried to watch extended excerpts. Yeah, he did. I mean, 
CNN is under fire uh, because they went so hard left. They have an audience between 200 and 400,000, and they've got a very heavy payroll of wannabe experts, you know, Anderson Cooper types that are way overpaid and have almost no audience. And they wanted to tack back to the old days of CNN. So they dreamed up this idea of getting this Collins who's supposed to be the new, I don't know what she is, the new Walter Cronkite, supposedly. And they thought they were going to kind of rig it and put it in a college, St. Anselm College. And you know how that is. And Donald Trump showed up and they thought they were going to embarrass him. And I mean, think about right now, just we've got the border. We've got inflation that's a historic high almost. We have interest rates that are 7%. We have the Afghanistan mess. We got the Ukraine war. We have deteriorating racial relationships. We have the whole blue state, blue city model imploding. We gave up energy efficiency. We've got the most corrupt president and his family in history. And what does she want to talk about for most of the time? January 6th, January 6th, January 6th, January 6th. Are you going to accept the election? And, you know, Donald Trump said it was rigged. But, you know, Molly Hemingway wrote a book called Rigged. And rigged can mean a lot of different things. Molly didn't say that the Dominion voting machines were rigged. I don't know if Trump believes that or not. What Molly said was that in March and April of 2020, a whole team of subsidized DNC lawyers changed the voting laws to such an effect that 70% didn't vote on election day. They voted not on election day. And that had an impact because the authenticity and the audits of those votes came into question in a way they had not in the past. That's indisputable. Mark Zuckerberg put in $419 million. The CIA we know now helped the retired 51 officers, i.e. intelligence authorities, on the prompt of Anthony Blinken to Mike Burrell, the former interim CIA director. What did they do? They deliberately suppressed a very important story that was accurate so they could, in a pre-planned fashion, give Joe Biden a shred of cover when he was going to be nailed on that laptop, which was very incriminating. Mr. Big Guy, Mr. 10%. And so, yes, that's called rigged. And Donald Trump, he could have done better, I think, in, in articulating that. But the idea that all of a sudden he was talking about QAnon. And I saw this clip from Anderson Cooper. He was just whining, just pathetic. And then they had these little, you know, they had Representative Donalds who just tore apart these CNN talking heads. He was really good. And they were just anguished because Donald Trump went into that thing and he just hijacked it. And he didn't he asked he answered what he wanted. He didn't answer what he didn't want. And then the crowd was supposed to be a college left wing. You know how those debates are. They're all at universities. But they weren't. There was a bunch of MAGA people came in and they don't like the the clingers. So it was an on godly disaster. The only good thing for CNN, it got it got out of the national news cycle, the Biden corruption, I suppose, for a day. But other than that, it offended its shrinking left wing base. It enraged all of its hack uh, talking heads. 
And it gave Donald Trump an attention. So whether you were reading a left-wing blog or a right-wing blog, it didn't matter. They all said Donald Trump hijacked that and intimidated CNN. And that's only a plus for him. Yeah, that sure is. And I mean, National Review got angry about it. A lot of people said, look, he could have done. Yes, he could have. I understand that. But he's obsessed because he's facing Alan Bragg and Letita James and Willis and Smith. And they're all politicized attacks. And he's sitting there with this entire crime syndicate that is soft on China, compromised on Ukraine, and got millions of dollars into the pockets of the Biden family, and nobody does anything. And they and it's the greatest example of the asymmetry, whether we're talking about papers at Mar-a-Lago or in Joe's garage. Everything is asymmetrical. And we've got a wide open border with a national homeland security, Mr. Mallorca head, that is completely subverting willfully so the law letting in people 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 by design and they should have impeached him and he should have been removed a year ago so yeah he's frustrated a lot of us are but i guess the moral of the story to conclude is if you think you're a intellectual or if you think like miss collins that you read all of your clippings how great you are and you're being groomed to be the new master and Don Lamone's out of the way, and Anderson Cooper brags on you, and you're in that little echo chamber, and you think you're going to get this crude, crass president who was impeached twice, and supposedly just, you know, he just lost a civil suit, and you're going to put him in there and humiliate him? You got to, th- he doesn't give a blank, blank. He really doesn't. And he's going to, rip you up unless you prepare and you go and you can go mano to mano with them. If you don't believe that, just go look at the tapes of the 2016 debate stage when you had some of the brightest, most capable Republicans. I mean, Jeb Bush did a good job. I I don't agree with him a lot, but he did a good job in Florida. And then you had Scott Walker and you had Marco Rubio and you had Ted Cruz. You had Carly Fiorina. You had Chris Christie. And they he he ate them all. He, he literally destroyed them. John Kasich, he destroyed them on the stage. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but... Yeah, he did. That's what he did on that on the other evening on CNN. Yes. And the Breitbart article was dancing its own little jig around the fact that Caitlin Collins could only come back with, that's wrong. That's not right. That's wrong. She didn't have the correction at all. He had, he had more... enough on her feet for that. Trump can be guilty of bombast, but he had more details than she did. She yes. was just she just thought, I'm in front of my left-wing college audience, and I got my CNN left-wing people, and I can just be the crusader that stood up to Donald Trump, but I don't have to go bone up on anything. And when you heard Anderson Cooper's little editorial, oh, you should be that tour at CNN. And those QAnon protesters on January 6th. And, you know, he called uh, he called the police person who shot Ashley Bobbitt, what, a thug? And, and uh, I think it was Anderson Cooper. And this is this typical racist characterization. <laughs> no, Anderson, the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt executed a person who went through a window and committed a misdemeanor. And you and your colleagues, any time in America, a police officer lethally shoots 
an unarmed suspect committing a misdemeanor, you call racism. And in this case, his identity was hidden. Was he a thug? No, probably not. But he had a checkered record. And he was known as a bully among his compatriots. And he left a loaded gun in a bathroom and lost it in the Capitol complex. And he was not really cited. If you're a police officer patrolling in the Capitol Police and you ensure the safety of the Congress and you leave your loaded service weapon in a bathroom, then you should be dismissed. And then they, of course, they suppressed his uh, identity because, and uh, and Anderson knows very well that as soon as a officer shoots a suspect, lethally so, their picture, their name, every biographical detail is splashed across every news account you can find, except this one. And hmm. then this guy got, had the gumption to get on what? Was it 60 Minutes? One of these left-wing outlets and kind of whine months later, oh, this is so terrible. They're threatening me. No, they're not threatening me, not threatening you to the degree that they're going to put you in jail and solitary confinement for a year, which they did with a lot of people who they later did not always charge. So I get, you know, I think everybody's tired of it. And Donald Trump, I I wouldn't have used the word thug, but he was trying to what? Incite them. And that's what he does. And this is going to be a choice for everybody as we go into this primary. And I want a primary because I want everybody to come out and and get excited. But is it going to be cool, efficient uh, Ron DeSantis? Is it going to be volatile, explosive Donald Trump? And some of you <laughs> say, I want to get angry. And some say, I want to get even. And And there's two different strategies. We'll have to see them play out. Yes, definitely. And that's what Donald, Donald Trump is. He's kind of like, you know, the Magnificent Seven that was written, rode out of town by Eli Wallach the first time. Remember, they had the kind of the villagers kind of didn't support them and they all got disarmed and they were riding out. And then the second came, time they came back, they were kind of crazy. Well, the same thing with the Wild Bunch. Remember? They they dealt with uh, Mapachi and they did they had to deal with him and then they killed their friend and they were all they got the money they're ready to go out they're out of power and then they say why not and they all come back and then you know Peck and Paws finale and that's what Donald Trump is he's coming back and they know it's uh, they're sort of the the townspeople and they kicked him out. Uh, he was kind of the gunslinger they hired to clean up the town and he cleaned it up too well. <laughs> and he Absolutely. bashed some people's head on the saloon bar, you know, and he drew his weapon at the mayor and all that stuff. So they conspired and they said, sorry, gunslinger, sorry, Shane, or whoever you are, you're out. And he rode off and now he's coming back and they see him on the, uh, on the horizon. They said, Oh shit. What is he going to do? And that's how they're in panic right now. Because, look, they know yes, they, are. They, they know what they did in those two phony impeachments. They know what they did with the laptop disinformation lie. They know what they did with the Russian collusion lie. They know they just went crazy over them. And they know that 
they told everybody that they were going to replace him with good old Joe Biden from Scranton was going to unite us. They knew he was senile and they knew he was incompetent, but they thought he would be a good little scab to the wound of socialism. And now, two and a half years later, it's an utter disaster and they've almost destroyed the country. So they have no argument. We're going to get a, a uniter. And then they look around and they think, oh, well, we'll get him. No, we cannot get Kamala Harris. No, 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 no. Maybe Amy Kobuchar. No, 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 no. How about Gavin? No, his deficit just went from twenty-four billion what to forty billion. Or all you'd have to do to run against Gavin Newsom if you were just put Florida, California. How many people are leaving California? To Florida, how many people leave Florida? What is the deficit in Florida? What's the tax rate in Florida? What is the standard? See what I mean? So that's there. Yes, I do. But they also, just like you say, they also know that all those things worked. And they, as you called it, they have the ability to rig an election through all sorts of local laws and get out the vote. I know, I know. Harvesting, Jeffrey, et cetera. Jeffrey, and they're, they're confident in that. They are. Jeffrey Katzenberg, the, what is he's that big Hollywood producer, he just kind of announced that he will spend whatever it takes to destroy Donald Trump. You know that Mark Zuckerberg will thought, you know what, that 419 made me famous. I stopped Donald Trump. So he's going to give probably a billion dollars. A billion for him is nothing. So, yeah, it's going to be a well, mess. If Trump gets a nomination, it's going to draw out every single billionaire that hates him. And they're going to go nuts. And this time they're not going to say, well, we're going to have a uniter. We don't hate Trump. We just want to bring the country back together. We want some moderate. No, they've seen Joe Biden. They're not even going to make that argument. They're not even going to say, well, he can't go out of, of his office because of COVID. They're going to say, you know what? He's senile. F you. What the hell you care? He's senile. Yes, he was a disaster. Yes, we don't care. All we want to do is stop this orange man. And that's that's what they're going to argument going to be. And the question will be whether they convince those um, independents one way or the other. And that'll be interesting to see. But it's also interesting in the terms of the money put into things. And currently in Pennsylvania, they have a DA election going on. And the various um, candidates, the two candidates, one, the Democrat raised 76,000 and the Republican candidate raised 227,000. But George Soros came in with 700 plus thousand for this Democratic DA. And it'll be interesting to see who wins in that because it'll really tell you what money can do. Well, we know what it did. He put, he ruined the major cities in the United States by. Funding not just incompetent people for these uh, city and state prosecutors, but mean spirited, angry people who wanted to get even with America and their way of getting even was letting criminals out. And again, the attitude was. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And so that that's what's scary. And, and yeah. let's let's face it. They, Gascon is just his attitude is. I'm going to let people out and I'm going to go out and search my books and see if there was ever a case dropped against a policeman. I'm going to reopen it. And I don't care that the downtown in L.A. is deserted. And Boudin got recalled and he didn't care. He ruined San Francisco and they don't care. And I think 
that 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 we yes. have to get that attitude that you know I, I said the other night on Sean's he said uh, people had said well the Bidens were completely unprepared no they weren't pre- unprepared on the border they wanted that we think yes. they're well, they're unprepared it's embarrassing yeah but. They get back and they talk about it. They said, all oh, those stupid MAGA people, we let in six and a half million illegals since we've been here. And if they stop us tomorrow, we did more than we've anybody's ever did to destroy that border. And we're proud of it. And what are you going to do about it? That's their attitude. Yes. And the fraying of civilization always occurs to or happens to the middle class first. So it's not going to affect them and it's not going to affect the absolute poor who's only direction is up, but the, that middle class and lower middle class, why don't we do all these people in their neighborhoods and just destroy them? Their school systems just destroy yeah. them. It's just, why don't we do, why don't we detour to that up since I brought it up that topic because the border's which, open 10,000 people arrested yes. as for, uh, per day. 42, per day. Yes. Yeah. And more getting across. And let's just dispel some of the mythologies. The first mythology is Joe Biden said yesterday that we has a partner in Mr. Obador. No, you don't. He's not your partner. He's not your partner. I mentioned that. We talked about that earlier. He's yeah. bragging, bragging that he sent 40 million people in here. And he's bragging that the, he wants them all to vote Democratic. And he knows that he's not going to touch the cartels. And if they kill 100,000 Americans, what does he say? It's America's fault. Don't don't create the demand for our cartel product. And they're all over the United States. $10 billion in revenues they make every year. He gets $60 billion from remittances. Does he care that the U.S. taxpayer who's listening to this is sending health, education, food, housing, legal help to people here illegally so they can free up cash to send back to Mr. Obrador's Mexico? No, that's the point. He doesn't care. That's number one. Number two, we all romanticize the immigrants. We all say, well, if I was in Oaxaca or Chiapas or Michoacan, I would come to maybe, maybe not. But I don't think I would deliberately break the law when I knew that people did not want me to come. So when you see all of those, mostly males, coming in the, across the border, and you have this idea, oh, this is so terrible. These people are so wonderful. No, you don't even know anything about them. If you think that's true and they're so wonderful, then go to an L.A. Lakers or an L.A. Uh, any sports event. Go to a 49er game and look at that crowd and say, oh, they're all so wonderful. I'd like any one of them to come in mind. You don't know anything about them because there's no audit. There's no background check. There's no legality. You know one thing. One thing, they are coming into the United States when they know, A, it is illegal to cross that border, B, it's illegal to reside in the United States, and C, they will do whatever it takes to sustain that illegality, whether it's social security numbers or false or drivers, they don't care. That's number one. And number two, they know that there's people amidst among them that are drug dealers, and felons and everybody's coming in. They don't care. And when they come in, they are not going to, as soon as they cross that border, kiss the soil and say, thank God I'm in the United States. 
I love this country. That's why I wanted to come here. And then they're going to say, and what do I have to do? Oh, I have a little tag that says, oh, you gave me a free cell phone and it's going to buzz me when my hearing. I love this country so much that I first thing I want to do is follow the law. You think that's going to happen? No. no. <laughs> when, when they get their hearing, they're going to say, F you. And then they're going to count on the ethnic lobby and the DNC and the whole thing. Uh, and so I get get rid of that second myth that the illegal immigrants are wonderful people that we are empathetic and they should come in. No, they're breaking the law. They know they're breaking the law. And if they really want to enact change, then they should stay in Mexico and work for change. And they don't want to do that. And Mr. Obrador, if he really wanted to solve the problem, then he would redirect his budgetary interest to something else, or he'd clean out his government of cartel people. And he can't or won't do that. The third, yeah, that's, the third that's something thing, that you didn't you didn't state that a lot of these people are coming over and they owe their transport to the cartels. So absolutely. they're going into our cities to work for the cartels. That's a disaster. And the third third so that's myth of mexico myth of the noble illegal immigrant and the third myth is the republican party is against illegal immigrant yeah maybe the maga party finally is but i liked ronald reagan but he signed the simpson mazzoli act of 1986 that destroyed border enforcement and he allowed them to come through i like alan simpson too and Yet that thing was the most deleterious thing impossible. The little I-9 Ford, was they were all forged within weeks, and there was no border enforcement. And why was that? Because the Republican corporate Chamber of Commerce, Cato Institution, let's get cheap labor. It's so wonderful. And get cheap labor, cheap labor. So if I've got a meatpacking plant, I've got a landscaping service i've got a hotel i've got cooks or i don't have it or i have you know i work at the dmv or i work at the disability or i'm a bureaucrat and we'll bring in people who are illegal they'll work and if they get injured or they get old or they want to quit we're going to throw them back on the social services and get somebody else and we don't give a blank blank about society at large it's just the truth and that constituency yes. has has really prohibited the Republican Party from doing anything. They keep talking about, well, we're going to sit down with comfort. George Bush was the worst, George W. Bush. We're going to sit down and do comprehensive immigration. No, you're not. You don't. Comprehensive immigration is reform is a euphemism for amnesty, amnesty, amnesty. That means you're going to sit down with the left and they're going to say, we want an open border. And you're going to say, well, can we have it 88 percent open? Just so cover that's because we want the same thing you do. You want voters. We want workers and we want profits. And then the final thing is myth number four is the empathetic uh, humanitarian left. No, they want there's 550 sanctuary cities. They all get on their soapbox and their megaphones. I'm for sanctuary cities. Bring us your tired, you're hungry, you're poor. No, when they go to Martha's Vineyard or Chicago. That's it. Right now, as we speak, there are protests of African-Americans in Chicago because they have a measly little 500 group of 
illegals that were bussed in there that are in a gym and they think they're going to, quote, dilute the vote. They're going to dilute our vote. You mean you guys vote on the basis of race? So 94% of your vote is directed toward a black candidate and you're afraid that 500 people will come in and you don't really care about their poverty? Okay. So don't tell me that you're the empathetic sanctuary cities. And if you think I'm picking on poor black people, go look at Martha's Vineyard. Wealthy, wealthy white people. Did you see those people, those clips when they first were busted in? They all got together and they thought, hmm, we're going to go give them food. <laughs> we're going to bring them clothes. And they bought boxes to this little migrant center they set up. <laughs> and, then after yes. about, and then after about three days, <laughs> Buffy and Preppy said to each other, hey, this is ruining my milieu. I don't want these people here. We're going to get together and really get them a nice bus ride out of here immediately. And then I saw <laughs> I, I saw Mallorca say, it's really I really don't like the idea that Governor Abbott is using human human people for political. What do you think you're doing? You created the situation for political purposes. You knew what was going to happen. You did it because your master said that they want you wanted to break the law and destroy it. And so finally, 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 a governor says, if you want to destroy federal immigration law, you're not going to destroy our state. I'm sorry. I'm going to send them all over and you're going to get your wish as a sanctuary city. And it shows you how racist the left is. They really are. They don't want any of them there. None. Yes. None. They want illegal immigration for two or three reasons. Number one, they want to flip the states blue so that they can win the electoral college. But they don't want to live in the areas where Hispanic illegal aliens are. Number two, they want to grow, want to make sure they come in without audit, without background checks. So they don't need to speak English. They don't need to have a high school diploma. They don't need to have definable skills. They don't need to have legality and they will throw themselves at the mercy to obtain parity on the social services industries. And that will require a GS 11, a GS 12, a GS 15 to attend to the needs, which means bigger government, bigger government, more taxes uh, and destroy the private sector more and more. That's their goal. Yes. And, and and then number three, they are guilt-ridden elites, and they know it. They know that from their white enclaves uh, in Chevy Chase or Brentwood or Malibu or Woodside, they feel just terrible about the world. So they support and they abstract the idea of letting anybody poor come to this great country as long as they don't have to be around them. And it, the cor the poor deplorables or the renegade Hispanics or the black conservatives that don't show no gratitude, they can deal with it, but not us. No, that's that's their attitude. So it's a rotten, it's a whole rotten thing. And it's full of mythologies and lies. It really is. And as I just mentioned, Mexico, if you could define an enemy, think about it. What country in the world is responsible for deliberately allowing a weapon to come in that kills 100,000 people? What country in the world sends its narco agents to control the other country's drug business? And 
And I mean it. You can't hike in some areas of the Sierra Nevada because you'll run into a cartel dope farm. And what country in the world exports human capital deliberately as a source of foreign exchange and doesn't give a damn about your laws or anything? That's And if you say Mexico, then you would say they're an enemy. They're not an ally. They're not an, a neutral. Everything they do would be qualified as a belligerent. They are. They're doing much more damage to us, I think, than North Korea is. So, you know, it's time to just stop all of the platitudes, stereotypes, generalizations that we're spoon-fed about illegal immigration and look at it for what it is. Absolutely. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and come back and talk a little bit about Cortez and the Aztecs, if we can do that. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, you can find Victor on his website at victorhanson.com. It's called The Blade of Perseus, and you can join for free and, and get on our newsletter, and we'll send you the free stuff that comes onto the website, which is copious American greatness articles and um, his podcasts and then other things that appearances that he has. And then you can join for $5 a month or $50 for the year. And you will get the VDH ultra articles, which are copious. So please come on and join us. We'll be happy to have you. Well, Victor, it's our historical weekend um, segment here. So let's, I, I know that the Aztecs or Cortez who comes in and conquers the Aztec empire, that's a big moment in military history, partly because it took so, it was such a short period and it was so absolute, if I can put it that way. So I was wondering if you could explain to us how it, how it happened. Well, we're, we've been talking about, we started with the Persian Wars, Peloponnesian Wars, Alexander the Great, the Roman conquest, the Roman civil wars, uh, the barbarian invasions. We got into the Byzantine wars in existence. We talked about the Hundred Years' War. And so right about this time, 1519, uh, Hernan Cortes was a minor, minor uh, Spanish official at Cuba. And he had heard tales that there was a monumental empire in the interior of Mexico, but he had not give, been given regal permission uh, to go in there. But he organized an ad hoc group and he cobbled together about 500, to be frank, glory hunters. And they wanted gold and glory and some priests. And they landed at is what is now Veracruz. And they almost immediately were opposed by various uh, allies, neutrals, and enemies of the Aztec Empire, who fought, even the Tlaxcalans fought them. And they won almost every battle. They were outnumbered at a magnitude of 10 to 1. But it was the unfortunate experience, destiny, fate of the Aztecs and their, their original allies that they were encountering a very peculiar, weird group of people. And these are people that had some of the greatest arms factories in Europe with the truly of steel swords and armor. They had arquebuses, uh, early personal firearms. They had bronze cannon. They had a nautical genius, Martin Lopez, that knew how to build 
ships ex nihilo. They had uh, people who knew how to fabricate gunpowder from local ingredients, salt, paper, salt pit, pepper, and uh, carbon. And most importantly, they had some absolute fanatics. One was Hernan Cortez, who was a kind of a clerk accountant and had no military experience, except they all had, they were Castilians. And they had been fighting Protestants for 20 years and Muslims for 400 years. And they were some of the most accomplished warriors of Spanish Tercio in the world. And when they unleashed them, when they went in there, they were murderous and you couldn't stop them. And there was some cultural confusion as they made their way inland toward what is now Mexico City, Tenochtitlan, the city on the lake. It was kind of like Venice. And, you know, if you look, read Bernard Diaz, the, the original impressions, they thought it was bigger than Venice. There may have been two to four hundred thousand people living there. And it was very well designed with locks on the lake and monumental architecture, sophisticated astronomical reckoning. And as they made their way in and defeated these preliminary tribes, they learned that all these people hated the Aztecs. Even though it was a loose confederation of over a million people, they learned that the Aztecs harvested their young people. In other words, they had so-called flower wars. Two sides met each other. They went out and they had large leather thong ropes. And one side then would attack the other side, knock a warrior down, drag him, put his feet in a thong and drag him out to a pre selected destination and then they would withdraw and then the guy who got the most was a very famous warrior and they sacrificed and they took him up to the plaza uh, major at mexico city in the case of the aztecs they treated him as royalty they painted him in the proper way they took him up to the priest they put him on an ups a stone table, the priest cut open his chest, they took out the beating heart for a second, offered to the gods, and then they kicked the corpse down the steps, they cut it, cut pieces off the thigh and arm, people ate it, they made guac, basically guacamole out of it, and then they, thread, they fed the carcass to the royal zoo. And the Spanish were shocked at this. They'd never seen cannibalism and human sacrifice so institutionalized. And then there was, they'd never seen what they called sodomy, what we would call homosexuality ritualized. And it became kind of a fanatic thing to stamp this out, but also to profit from it and to get rich. And so they began in typical Roman fashion, divide and conquer. They were able to appeal to the self-interest of all these people who hated uh, the Aztecs. In the case of the Tlaxcalan, the largest anti-Aztec group, they made a pact with them and said, we're going to win and we're going to control this country and we're going to make you exempt from slavery, tribute, everything. And they kind of kept their word for after they fall. And then... At any given time, they never had more than 1,500 conquistadors. They at times swelled up to 2,500, but they were quickly whittled back down. And they almost got wiped out in the so-called Noche Triste, the unhappy night where they got trapped in the city. And Montezuma, who they took hostage, the king, 
emperor was killed. I can't get into that how. We don't have enough time. But they had to, at the middle of the night in a rainstorm, get out on the dikes and go on the causeways out of that lake. And they were greedy and they were laden down with gold. And they lost about 500 of them fell in the lake or were butchered. And then there was only about eight or 900 left. And that was, there's these moving in three or four sources or these moving accounts in Spanish about these conquistadors. And they're on the, they're almost, they're wounded. They've been out number 10,000 people attacked them in canoes. They're shredded and they're looking back at the, the silhouette and they're seeing their former friends, our friends, and they're all painted and they're dressed up with feathers and they're all shrieking as their hearts are turn, torn out. And then the Aztecs are surrounding them. And what would be the attitude of most people? You would run or give it not Hernan Cortez. So what they did was they did what they always did. They had horses, which the Aztecs had never seen. They thought originally that a Spanish conquistador on a horse was one person, a centaur. And they'd never seen mastiffs before. These were not just like, you know, a chihuahua. They had some experience with small little dogs, but these were these huge dogs. You see them today. They weigh 150 pounds and they were trained as, you know, war dogs. They'd never seen steel before. And this was not just steel. It was Spanish Toledo steel. It was razor sharp. They'd never seen men in armor before. And this was Spanish armor. They'd never seen or heard gunpowder before, and they had kind of a scatter shot, grape shot load in these small cannons, and they'd never seen lancers before. And so, and, that, and they'd never seen fanatics, but they were fanatics, but they didn't understand the Spanish version of Catholicism that was embattled against Islam and Protestantism. And so when you put those ingredients together and you get a hundred conquistadors and horses and lances with that fanaticism, they would, instead of running away, they just turned around and went right for at the Battle of Atumba, right after the Noche Triste. And they just wiped out all of the, the Aztec captains and stopped the, the uh, pursuit. And then what did they do? They went back. They were completely decimated. They were sick. They were wounded. And they got reinforcements from Veracruz. They went back and they said, you know, the reason we lost, we don't have ships. And they built brigantines. They built kind of sloops and they numbered the parts. They took them apart and they carried them on the backs of the Tlaxcalans. And they went back into Tenochtitlan. They put a fleet in there and then they announced that they were going to take the capital city and the empire. And they had this horrific fight and they demolished this entire city block by block. And like every conqueror, they always say afterwards they didn't mean to. And, you know, he had to apologize to Charles V and say, I didn't really mean to do this, but of course he did. And then on the ashes of Tenochtitlan, they built Mexico City and they used the enslaved Aztecs to the degree there were any left. We don't know how many were wiped out, probably over six, four or 500,000 because at this, they had also had people from... Uh, Africa and the tropics with them that had smallpox. And while they weren't completely immune, they got sick, whereas people in Mexico died immediately because they had no natural defenses of whooping cough, smallpox, etc. So between disease 
and gunpowder and horses and dogs and Spanish steel, they were almost invincible, no matter how few they were. And then mm-hmm. that was the beginning of this this new idea, and along with Pizarro in South America, that that was the end of a monumental, cohesive, independent Mexico. And the Mexico is a word that they use. They don't think they ever called themselves Aztecs. That was a used word the Spanish used for them, based, yes. I think, on a village. And so it was pretty traumatic. But by 1521, you're right, he did it in less than three years. And then they had, you know, typical of the Spanish conquest. conquest. Then they fought for, the, he died at 62. So for the next 25 years, all he did was argue back and forth about whether he, after he was governor, then they, he was dismissed. Did he have a royal writ? He was in court. Did he steal money? And his, he, he, he died in Castile pretty uh, poor. But, wow. And he had a lot of children from indigenous women, and he was very loyal to his mixed uh, kids of mixed parentage. And Malinche, the famous Doña Maria, was a Native American that he picked up uh, on the coast of Veracruz who had knowledge of ind- indigenous languages and Aztec or Mexica. But more importantly, she could she could speak. At first, she spoke. Uh, an Indian dialect that one of the people who understood it could then in a roundabout way understand what the Tlaxcalans or the Aztecs were saying. In other words, she would translate into a more common Indian dialect that somebody who knew Spanish would. But then she learned Spanish or she knew it better. And so she was the key to it because all of the communications he had with the Aztecs were were through her. She's, I think, in Mexico called the great trader today, and then Spain probably not so uh, bad a reputation. But basically, Montezuma had no idea what he was up against. I know originally people said, well, the Aztecs were so culturally confused, they never galvanized because the ships came in. They thought they were gods. They had white skin and red hair, the Spanish, many of them. Partly, but they caught on really quick who they were. I don't think they understood very quickly. They sweat, they defecated, they fornicated. They were human and they were greedy. And they had a particular religion like, you know, that as the Aztecs did, they just wanted to imprint their religion on people. And the Aztecs didn't really know how to fight them. You know what I mean? They would never, they'd never seen a Western tie a Western military mentality where the purpose is to kill or wound or destroy as many of the enemy you can, drive them off the battlefield, and then use military victories for strategic or diplomatic ends. And that's what the Spanish thought, like Romans. So when they got in a war, they didn't, (laughs) you know, you got these grotesque scenes where a conquistador would be knocked off his horse on rare occasions, a Pedro Alvarado or... Uh, Salvador or Cortez, and then they would swarm him and they could have killed him, but they were trying to drag him. So he would be a prized sacrificial uh, victim. And that gave enormous advantages to the Spaniards because they just whacked off. There's descriptions with, you know, they had obsidian blades that were just as just as sharp as Spanish steel for one or two blows, Uh, but they couldn't do much against armor. But 
and after three or four blows that they lost their edge but these steel swords they they were taking off whole arms heads everything and so it was a pretty gruesome brutal and it was a very different colonial experience uh, and I think it explains today why people are coming from Mexico here and you don't have a lot of people here demanding to get into Mexico. It's yes. not it's it's not race. It's not. It's not anything but a very different history of the European experience in the new world of northern, you know, I would say Britain, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, vis-a-vis Spain. And they were a religiously diverse group. The Spanish were monolithic, uh, Catholic. Southern Europe and Eastern Europe kept Islam out of Europe. And they became much more combative and absolutist vis-a-vis enemies than even the French or the Dutch or the Belgians or the British. And when they went to the New World, uh, there were people going from Britain to escape religious persecution or they wanted to have more land or they were starving. But people who were going from Spain were going to make money and conquest and were mostly, not always, but a much greater percentage were male, young male. That's how you made your future in Spain in the 16th century. You went to Cuba, you went to Yucatan, you went to Mexico, you went to Peru, and you got a big hacienda, you got enslaved Indians. They brought in a lot of in North American African slaves. But you didn't bring your entire family is what I'm saying. Yeah. Do you, can I take you back a little bit to yeah. the fighting with the Aztecs and the they say usually that the Aztecs probably had about 100,000 warriors. So give yes. or take, I'm not really concerned so much about that number. But, you know, when you look at it, they also talk about disease took approximately and this is a broad statistic, 90 percent of the population. I think that's but what do you think? That, that- Modern it, scholars have downsized that a little bit to about 65%, 60%. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think it did to the um, Aztec military? Do you think it was um, affected the size of it by much? Or Oh, yeah, absolutely. We There's a lot of contemporary Aztec art where people have these horrific pustules all over their body, and we have accounts from the Spanish. It was also... Uh, They had never seen a European disease like that, and the Europeans had been dealing with it since antiquity, you know, the great plague at Athens. So they had they didn't have a cellular uh, science. They didn't quite understand infection as we know it today, but they did understand empirically how to treat it. And so they believed in quarantines and some rudimentary hygiene. What does that mean? That meant when a conquistador got smallpox, they would remove him from the other conquistadors. And there were monks with military, I mean, with uh, medical knowledge, they'd put honey on it, or they put salve on the wounds, or they knew how to keep the per- to keep the fever down, or they had a herbal uh, pharmaceutical arsenal to use when the aztecs got they never had seen it before they didn't know what it was they had never seen such such a deadly disease and so they did things 
especially the priestly class. So what happens when you did it, you killed a, a, a victim, they usually flayed them and the priest would wear cloaks out of human skin or they would take some of the blood and flesh and grind it up as kind of, as I said, a guacamole like sprinkling on meat and things. Well, that there was that's what wiped out the priestly class because when they found somebody that was infected with smallpox, they didn't know what they were doing and they were spreading the disease. So a lot of they didn't have any experience is what I'm saying with it as the Spanish did. And then immunologically, the Spanish had some had been exposed to it for centuries. So they were not as 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 um, vulnerable. But but before we just to finish, that's kind of a, a left wing narrative now that. The Europeans came in and they brought all of these horrible things and they destroyed paradise. History doesn't work that way. It's not melodrama. It's tragedy. When you have a collision of two dynamic uh, warlike societies like the Aztecs and the Spaniards. So there's a, a cultural exchange and it can be good. The, Brit the Spanish brought a lot of things that, you know, they brought horses, they brought cattle in. There were no large herbivores. In Mexico, and a lot of people have argued that was one of the catalysts for uh, cannibalism. But they brought in cattle, they brought in horses, they brought in pigs, uh, and on, there was another exchange. So, did they get? They were just helping the Aztecs. No, they didn't want to help the Aztecs. The Aztecs didn't want to help the Spanish, uh, but they they brought a cross. So the Spanish brought back what tomatoes? They thought they were deadly nightshade for a hundred years. They brought back a potato, but it wasn't all positive. So when you say, well, the Spanish introduced disease, well, you can make the argument that the Aztecs introduced and indigenous people, they introduced cocaine to uh, Europe. Uh, in the case of Africa, they introduced coffee. In the case of China, they, all, they introduced tea. They introduced venereal disease. That's very, com you know, syphilis. there had been some venereal, but not this virulent form that seems to have been only found in Europe after the conquest of the new world, or at least experience with the new world. And so uh, sugar was not really known very much in Europe. It was coming from the tropics. So I had a debate, oh, 20 years ago with a prominent scholar, and he was lecturing me about all the pernicious things that the Europeans brought. And I just said, well, you know, what is what is what is considered unhealthy today in Europe or the United States? Obesity, sugar, too much chocolate. Ah, too much caffeine. People drink too much coffee. Ah, drugs. They take too much Coke. Oh, they're too promiscuous. They have sexual. Where did all that come from? See what I mean? It, it's just. Yes. And I wasn't yes. trying to defame indigenous people i'm just trying to say that it's a it's a complex process there's no good and bad yeah. and and the aztecs were absolutely as fanatic as the spanish were spanish. Yeah. but the spaniards thought they were if you read contemporary chronicles the Spaniards thought they were satanic because of the human sacrifice, the cannibalism, the homosexuality, and Spanish had no problem with slavery, but um, they, so that, that didn't bother them. 
they were as amoral on that issue. But and then the Aztecs, when they looked at the Spaniards, thought that they were not the they knew they weren't finally divine, but they thought they were sort of horrific overclass or over supermen and that they were evil and they were dangerous and they had these devilry, these dogs and horses and guns and steel, and they were very powerful and they had no anecdote against them. Yes. I have my second question is this, and and I know we have to go to a break, but to what extent does the was the Spanish Castilian military based on the Roman military? Would a Roman from the let's say the fourth or fifth century have recognized a thousand years later this Castilian military understood its organization, understood its strategies and tactics. Well, what do you think? <laughs> that that might be too big to answer because it is a thousand years, but well almost contemporaneous with uh the Reconquista. I remember 1492 is just 30 years before um Cortez lands. So uh they have only had the idea of a unified, cohesive Spain for about three decades. And the Protestant Reformation really doesn't get going until 1500 or, you know, takes off. And so they were right at the cusp of feeling that they had been beleaguered by Islam, as I said, and religious uh, schisms. And one of the things was that they went back and the Roman legionary system was diffused after the, the West fell. It continued in different forms with the Byzantines. And that's why they survived for 1,100 years. And there were elements in the West that were diffused at people uh, that were remnants. So the Gauls broke off and they became Franks. And the Spaniards, uh, you know, and the Lombards and Viscos, and everybody broke off. Okay, so one of the things they they did is they had cataphractos. That's just a Greek word for covered, completely covered. So they had heavy cavalry, and it was even mailed. And so the, the Spanish kept that tradition alive. They didn't use the word equus. They had a, a new word. You know, they had the Iberian word caballos, caballo. But the point is, they had the idea of a massed cavalry attack with horses that had protection on them, with a fully armored rider with a lance, not a spear, not a javelin, a lance. And so when they unleashed these core, and they were very small because they had to, you know, how hard is it to take a horse 4,000 miles, keep it alive? But when they brought these horses over and they weren't, you, and they weren't just little Shetland ponies, these were from, you know, these were Arab horses that they had got from the Muslim. They were big and they had, you know, had conquistadors the conquistador horse was sort of a uh, derivative of the the old crusader heavy cavalry so when they unleashed them on the asset you couldn't stop them it would like be like a tank a modern tank and that had come from the eastern roman empire that one of the things that kept it going for until the fourth or fifth century were cataphracts the other thing was of course was the Greek phalanx, and then it was, you know, the moderations that ended in a more flexible legion. But the point was a foot soldier who fights in close formation. And this was the beginning, right? 
at this time, they recreated something they called the Tercio. And uh, these were formations, you know, of professional, they were professional soldiers. And they they started right around the 1590s, 1500s, and tactically, administratively, they were unstoppable. They were pikemen, and they fought in close formation. And once you, if you could protect the flanks and you could let them keep in formation on level ground, you couldn't stop them. And so again and again, when Cortez is trapped, he what he does is he gets 30 or 40 cataphracts or Spanish lancers on each wing, and then he reforms the men in close array, and they're armored, and they have lances, and they march step by step against the Aztecs, and then the cavalry uh, keeps keeps their flanks protected, and then behind, as Alexander the Great, behind the Tercio, there are missile troops. So what does that mean? They might have a hundred Spanish crossbows, crossbowmen, or they would have another hundred arquebuses. These would be kind of like a musket with a little stand on it, and uh, it was very clumsy. It, it took about a minute and a half to load and fire, but they were of large caliber, full of kind of shotgun buckshot. So if you imagine all of these lightly armed, cloth armored Aztecs just outnumbering them 10 to 1 and thronging all around them, but they're trying to take captives. They're not trying to kill them. They want to take captives. They will kill them if they have to, but their prime directive is to get captives, to get individual prowess and honor and recognition that you got the most people sacrificed. And so when they were thronging them, they couldn't stop these tercios. They just butchered them. And then at key moments, the men behind would concentrate with their arrows. They had bows, they had crossbows and arc, and they would blast apart field. And at key moments, Cortez would then yell, Castile, Castile, or the battle cry. And then they would just rush out, you know, 50 horsemen, horse to horse. And you couldn't, I mean, it would be like a lawnmower. And they just went through. And usually they, they targeted the Aztec leader would have a banner, and that was where when you bought your, it was kind of like turning in <laughs> your your harvest or something. When you got your six or seven Spaniards and you were tied up, then you dragged them over and deposited them. And that's where they went. They went and wiped out those uh, regional battle commanders. So they were thinking tactically and strategically like Romans all the time. And when they wanted to take Tenochtitlan, they had maps of the city. They understood. They had a amphibious, combined amphibious land force. And the Aztecs just had a very different uh, worldview about war. You know what I mean? They had only fought people like themselves, and they were considered the most fierce of all the indigenous people. But the other people did, the other tribes they defeated had sacrifice, but not like the Aztecs. Something had gone wrong in Aztec culture at the end of the 15th century, where they started to sacrifice people, not in twos and threes, but in 40s and 50s a day. And they were uh, really harvesting people from in local tribes, children, and they had created a great deal of ill will. And so in typical Roman diplomatic fashion, Cortez played on that. And he 
said, you know, if you'll follow me into the city, I will destroy it and you will be, I'll have a new overlord, but he won't ever have human sacrifice again. A lot of scholars say, oh, you know, you can't say that, that you don't know that, but it's in the sources. And so you get this ridiculous situation that when he went back in, he only had 1,500 people, if that. But he had 20,000 Plaxcalan warriors. And it, they brought in another five to 10,000 other allied people who lived around. And if the Aztecs weren't so hated, they, they, uh, they might have survived. That's what's so complex. It's like, the final siege of Constantinople, you had 7,000 Europeans on the walls, Greeks, Genovese, and Venetian. But there were more Christians fighting the, the, the Byzantines outside the walls than the Byzantines on the walls. They had all of these Hungarians and Balkan people and converts that the Islamic people had been able to, through coercion and enticement, draft into their army. And the same thing with Cortez. How how did they use those Tlaxcalan auxiliary troops? Was it kind of like the Wagner group? Throw them out there, let them get slaughtered, and then we'll we'll. Well, they know. took they took heavier losses, but no, they weren't they weren't cynical about that. What what they would do is they were because they were. It's hard to to capture the mind because they they've been so demonized. And the Spanish, if you go to Spain, talk to Spaniards, or you're there, they're very sensitive about. It today but they've been so demonized by the mexican government and everybody but they were just if i could redirect maybe next time we'll talk about the battle of lepanto but when you go back 50 years ahead of this 1571 and you look at that fleet that destroyed uh the ottoman fleet at lepanto about 40 percent of it were spaniards and in the actual the venetians were wonderful uh seamen but when you look at the actual fighting deck to deck it was don juan and the conquistadors that were that made the difference i mean they were there were nobody like them partly they were if you read about sartorius or scipio africanus and their experience in the province of I what would become iberia they had a terrible time the indigenous people there were so violent and so effective as warriors and then when they were assimilated, integrated, incorporated into the legions, they were very good legions. And that military tradition, when you, when, again, when you fortify it or energize it with Catholicism, and it's on the other side of the Pyrenees from Europe, and it's not protected like France or Britain, France by the Pyrenees or Britain by the English Channel, but it's exposed, it's right, you know, eight miles from North Africa, and you've got this Islamic sweep from the 7th century, 8th century, right into Europe. And they they had fought from, you know, 750 all the way to 1492. For 700 years, they had fought Islam. And they were, they were pretty good at what they did. And they had this idea that they saved Western civilization. And the decadent Northern Protestants were using them as the bulwark. They had the same attitude as the Eastern European Byzantines, that mm. that orthodoxy and Catholicism were on the front lines against Islam, and that the Protestant Northern Europeans got rich and they were safe, but they were not on the front lines fighting Islam, and uh, they didn't sacrifice, and they were not, you know, that that's... An, 
as someone, you know, in the United States, is there's this strong Protestant tradition. We we kind of give short shrift to that, or we say they were fanatics. But I don't know how they did it. I mean, Cortez was about five seven, probably weighed 130 pounds. He probably wore 40 or 50 pounds of armor. We know that he was hit in the head and had a concussion. We know people lost their hands, their fingers. They just kept going. They were sick. He had they had they they suffered from yellow fever. They weren't experienced with yellow fever very much, and they had strains of malaria they had not encountered in Europe. So they were all sick, just as sick sometimes as the Aztecs. Only had there were fewer of them, but how they survived it's just amazing. And when you read Bernal Diaz, uh, the, one of the historians, or Gomorrah, these people, they religion for them wasn't as if as it is for a modern America. It was a live, breathing, daily, hourly connection, relationship with Jesus Christ and God and the, the Holy Virgin. And they felt they saw them everywhere. They talked to them. They were converting souls and saving indigenous people from Satan. And that the that these satanic practices had to be stopped for the good of mankind. I can call it warp, but they did believe, fanatically so. And, um, you know, the Aztecs were very, yeah, they were amused. They thought that (laughs) they didn't quite understand. For them, gold was just something like silver or iron ore that they they knew something about. They would... They didn't have sophisticated metallurgy, but they could collect it in rivers and stuff, and then they could smelt it. And they understood that gold didn't rust, and it was more, it was rarer than silver. So they liked gold, but it wasn't obsessive. They had other means of of currencies. And when they said, the first thing the conquistadors said was, where's the gold? Where's the gold? We want the gold. And they didn't understand that. They, They thought they ate it at first. They said, well, do they eat it? Is that why they're so strong? They, eat, they, <laughs> they, they, they didn't know why anybody would be so obsessed with gold. Yeah. <laughs> and they were and they were just totally obsessed with it. In fact, on the Noche Triste, Navarrez, these were the later conquistadors that came to arrest Cortez and he flipped them. <laughs> he flipped them all over to his side and put Navarrez in jail. He said he was a he was an absolute Machiavellian genius. But the point is, those were the guys who didn't know much about the Aztecs. Because they hadn't been in Tenochtitlan for eight months. And so when they met the Cortez conquistadors, the Cortez people said, be careful. These people are not backward people. You think they're backward. They are deadly and they're treacherous and they're going to try to kill us. So we're going to escape. And I wouldn't take so much gold. And most of the five to 600 or 490, we don't know the exact number, that perished on the Noche Triste were Navarrez's men who... Uh, were laden with gold. So that when they fell over the causeways into the lake, they couldn't get out. They had armor and gold. People for years later mm-hmm. were look- looking for Cortez's gold in the <laughs> lake bottom. All right. Well, Victor, we need to take a break and come back. And I think we'll talk a little bit about agriculture when we come back. You're listening to the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Stay with us. We're back, and um, I'd like to remind everybody that Victor is available on Facebook at The Morning Cup, and he has a Twitter account, so come join us at 
at VD Hansen. And you can catch him too on a Facebook page called the Victor Davis Hansen Fan Club page. It is not affiliated with us, but they have lots of uh, things that Victor does even way beyond what we put on the website, people dredge up old things that they've found of Victor's um, talks, et cetera. So, Victor, we agreed to talk a little bit about agriculture each time. So I know that you had a topic you wanted to do today, so I'll let you t- go with it. Well, we're talking about uh, what would be lost if the agrarian uh, profile is lost and, and we're at 99% of the people who are not engaged in farming. Is there going to be anything lost given 90% of the people who founded this country were farmers and I suppose uh, imbued the American mentality constitution with a particular type of values. Last time I thought about some of the things that you have to do uh, that can be kind of odd in, in one profession. You have to be an accountant. You have to know something about the law. You have to know something about chemistry with pesticides or herbicides. You have to know something about biology. You have to know something about getting along with neighbors. You have to know something about how to labor. You have to understand profit and loss. So it's it's quite unusual. And then I mentioned also you have to have a tragic view of the world that if you're working with nature, uh, you have to expect that at particular times you can't control everything. And that gives you a humbling experience. And I mentioned last time, as you remember, that you can thin, fertilize everything, get a a beautiful plum crop ready, and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, hail can destroy it. And I'll give you another example of what I was talking about. You can have 100,000 trays on the ground, your entire work for a year, And you know that 95% of the time in late August and early September, it does not rain in central California. But nonetheless, your entire crop can be out there. And all of a sudden, a hurricane from the Gulf of Mexico or up to the Sea of Cortez can come up and just wipe it out in three hours. That is rain to such a degree that you get mold or rot and that's gone. And then you have to, you know, you wonder why this is happening. But out of that tragedy comes an appreciation about nature and the tragic view of the human experience, which I think is really good to have because we're a therapeutic society. The wealthier and more leisured and affluent we become and the more divorced between that we are from nature, we we have this unrealistic idea about the human experience that we can control. And then when we can't, we get very angry. Another thing is there's a a human need to have nature. If you notice that people, the more they get divorced from nature, the more they want to be part of it. So I was always amused when I was farming, when I would go up to North Fresno and I'd see people who were very affluent and they would have a Range Rover or a Land Cruiser just to drive around Fresno, but it had snow uh, mud tires and it had a hitch on it or a Jeep. And I thought, wow, they're prepared to go anywhere in the world, but they go nowhere. They're just going on the streets. But it was, or they would wear uh, sub-zero, you know, those special types of pleated, really expensive jackets. Or they had $300 hiking boots just to go to class or to professors. So there was a need. I think people thought, well, I want, I'm going to get, I'm going to be with nature. 
So there is a need. The other thing, what I'd like to just finish with that I didn't talk about last time is that you get rid of the romance of nature once you, you know, when you have to live with polar bears or you're a cattleman, you deal with wolves, then you have a different view of the botanist at UC Berkeley or the biologist or, you know, the uh, zoologist. And so it's the same thing with farming. So when you see a great skeletonizer and you have worked your whole year and you see this particular type of worm come in, and within a day or two, he can denude an entire uh, row of vines. Or you see a particular new species of leafhopper come in on your grape crop and completely defoliate it. Then something that you don't like, like a pesticide, you might want to use to fight nature. And you'd say, well, why don't you just use natural things? Yeah, that would be nice. Hot pepper and things like that. Uh but you, that doesn't really work. If you only want to stop that that day to save your crop, you might want to use Dibrom 7, which is a very, I mean, I've used it. And I couldn't breathe for a couple of weeks normally after I used it. Um, so my point is that you, you get a, a different attitude about nature or when you're out there working uh, and you have your dog and you're pruning vines and you see a coyote that kind of limps or it gets close to you and you have no idea whether it's rabbit or not, but there's something wrong with that. And you don't, and you want to get rid of it very quickly or you're irrigating surface irrigating before the age of drip. And you have furrows that go down a quarter mile and you've set all of your traps of uh, your valves and you've got the head of water perfectly regulated. You've got a hundred rows on 20 acres or 30 acres and all of the rows and you look at your furrows and just perfect and you've worked so hard to level the ground with your scraper and then you brought in a laser leveler sometimes and that water is going all the way down a quarter mile and it's going to make it to the end in maybe 45 minutes and you can leave it on for a night and it's a very efficient way contrary to popular belief to irrigate if you turn on that water at four in the afternoon and you've got a perfectly level field you can wake up at seven in the morning and the whole field has been irrigated with furrow irrigation. The roots are out in the middle of the road. It's a very good, and there was very little trans, uh, loss of transpiration or loss of the water to the atmosphere because it was at night. But, but if you've got some damn squirrels or gophers, and they have tunneled all through your vineyard, and that happens especially on sandy soil, and when that water goes down, it hits one of those holes. And it never reaches the end and it goes onto the vine and it washes another one out. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you only have three days to use the water and you you drive there and everything was perfect at eight o'clock that night on a July night. And you come back the next morning and 30 rows never got, a third of the road never got their water. And you say, God, what are those damn? Then what do you do? You go get gopher traps, you go get gopher bombs, you go get cyanide and you go kill those things and you're fighting nature. And so it's man against nature all the time. And you don't have any moment. And it's not that you you don't exploit nature because you have to live with nature. And unlike somebody in town who the food, you know, when you're in town and I've lived in town, I don't know where my sewage, sewage goes. 
I don't know where my water comes from. I don't know where my power comes from. I don't know where my food comes from. But if you're farming and you're living out in the country, you know where your sewage goes because you have to pump it out. You know where your water comes from because you pump it out of the ground and you do not want to pollute that water. And you want your sewage to be away from your well. And you are not going to go spray, you know, parathion on your peach orchard when your kids are out there working in it. So you you develop uh, a respect for nature and you work in tandem with nature, but you don't romanticize it. And that's very good. That balance is, I think, really important. And we've lost completely that balance in a suburban urban society where people... They either dress like they're going to go hike up, you know, Mount Everest, and they never leave uh, the suburbs, or uh, they go up to Yosemite one day a week, and then they say, we don't want anybody going to Yosemite. We're just going to keep it off as a natural preserve, or, you know, we're going to end logging. And they, they don't understand that you can be a logger and work with nature and clean the forest and get rid of bad trees and prevent fires. So they have this romantic view that actually is quite deadly in, in many avenues. But, yes. uh, and, that they, and and then just to finish, you know, we had 180 acres, but we had 30 acres of organic. So we had uh, eight farmer's markets. This is between 1980 and 2000, 20 years. And I used to drive, not as much as my brothers did, but because I was teaching for 15 years of that time. But my point is this, that uh, when you say you're going to go organic, you should realize something that there was a reason why people are not all organic. In other words, we were all organic to start with, but then some for some reason people didn't go organic. And that's because it's labor intensive. And it's prone to more insect damage. And the fruit does not look as good. So when you have 30 acres, if our, we had 12 kids among the four of us. And when they wanted, wanted to have organic to, tomatoes or we, everybody weeded that. You had to weed by hand. You couldn't use Roundup. You couldn't use Paraquat. You couldn't use herb, pre-emergent herbicides. So you were out there. And then when you wanted to fertilize, you were using manures and it stunk. Even though it had been dry, it stunk. It wasn't as nice as those little calcium nitrate pellets. And when you went to pick those tomatoes, these folk, my, I remember my daughter, Susanna, would say, oh, my God, Dad, look. And she'd come in for lunch and she'd have one of those big, ugly, you know, those big, ugly green uh, tomato caterpillars. It would be on her arm, <laughs> yes. bite, biting her. And she'd say, oh, my God, it was the size, you know, it looked like your size of your index finger. And she said, why didn't you spray? I said, if we spray, we can't have, you can't, you know. So it, organic was not, uh, and we were very meticulous. We never sold one grape, not one Asian pear, not one persimmon, not one Alberta peach that had a taint of herbicide on it or fertilizer or pesticide. If you went to Monterey or Santa Cruz, those that you bought from us, it was organic. We're very careful about it. But boy, it was so much more expensive and so much time consuming. And when you put, we had one, we were, we separated the van. We had traditionally grown, say, Santa Rosa plums and Alberta peaches versus organic. Guess what? The Alberta peaches 
that were, I mean, they weren't polluted. They were used with chemical fertilizers, ammonium nitrate, ammonium sulfate, calcium nitrate. And they had winter spray, oil and diazinon, and maybe one spray at most of, say, omite for mites. So there wasn't very much on it. But when you looked at that compared to the organic, those were big. They were shiny. They were There wasn't a blemish on them, no insect damage. And you put them on the table and you say organic, non-organic. And guess what? <laughs> the organic was more expensive because <laughs> everybody swarmed the nice, beautiful fruit that was... And we were, these were old varieties. We specialized on this 30 acres of stuff that wouldn't ship. So when we were growing up as kids, everybody had Alberta peaches. They had Santa Rosa plums, Bermosa plum, all of these old varieties, uh, hail peaches. And nobody could grow them anymore because you had to get rock hard fruit that tasted awful and ship it to New York, pick it green because there was no local markets. But if you only had to go over, say, 200 miles to Santa Cruz or San Francisco or Los Angeles or Santa Barbara, then you could pick it the night, that night and get in the car and drive all the way to Monterey and get a motel and get up at five in the morning, go to the farmer's market. And there was this beautiful, fresh fruit and they were old varieties. So they were delicious and they were, they were bred to be delicious. They weren't bred to ship. And if, Believe me, if you didn't sell them all, by the time you got home in a day, they were rotten. <laughs> but they were much more uh, tasty, and uh, the people loved them. They really did, but they didn't like the look of organic fruit. Well, it sounds like the dogs have ended our time here, Victor. I hope you don't mind that. Nope. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. Thank you, everybody. 